Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey of revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, let me show you what I'm doing. Taking advantage of some of the time off to add a whole new wing on here. Gonna rip these walls out and, of course, rewire it. Yeah, you're gonna make it all 220? Yeah, 220, 221, whatever it takes. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1983 role reversal comedy Mr. Mom, starring Michael Keaton, Terry Garr, and Martin Mull, directed by Steve Dragody, and written by John Hughes. This movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 31 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is what's on the box. Take it away, Jason. What happens when a young auto executive gets hit by hard times and his wife becomes a rising star in the business world? What happens is Mr. Mom, the hilarious hit film starring Michael Keaton as a hardworking husband who becomes a harried housewife and Oscar nominee Terry Garr as a housewife who turns into a high-powered executive. At the start, Jack Butler, Keaton, thinks he's a regular Phil Donahue, but soon dishes, diapers, and a man-eating vacuum cleaner have him singing a different tune. In the meantime, Carolyn has come up with a pitch to her salvage her ad agency's biggest account, but can't seem to run fast enough from her persistent boss. This delightful comic turnabout, directed by Stan Dragotti and written by John Hughes, also stars Sexy Ann Jillian as an over-amorous neighbor, and Martin Mull as the philandering employer, all part of the outrageous cast of characters who help make Jack and Carolyn Butler's switcheroo into one hilarious problem after another. Mr. Mom, the comedy masterpiece that's a laugh ahead of its time. Mr. Mom, so that was what's on the box. Jason, how are we doing? Mr. Bill, I'm doing great, pal. Looking to get into this fun one. How are you doing tonight? You ready to get into this uh, lighthearted, fun-loving comedy? Yes, a, a change of pace from our um, Splatter Cinema Month, so I figured let's let's roll into a nice, light comedy. Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is a little change of pace from The Shining. Yes, big time. All right, so let's move on to our earliest memories. What are earliest memories of Mr. Mom? Jason, as always, please start us off. I will, Bill Band. Thanks. Hey, man, this is a movie I would catch from time to time on cable for sure. And I could be wrong, but this might be the first film that I saw Michael Keaton in. I know I did not see Night Shift. I vaguely recall watching Johnny Dangerously in bits and pieces on cable, but it wasn't until later with Beetlejuice and the Dream Team that I became a bona fide fan of Michael Keaton's, and then that, of course, led into Batman... But Mr. Mom was most likely the first time I got to see Michael Keaton. I did not see this in the theater, and I don't have any attachments to this movie necessarily outside of the actual viewing experience itself. And this is another film that I could only recall vague images of at first. But once I started in on the research, and even with the what's on the box segment, I could remember the main players, of course, and a scene here or there, specifically the vacuum scene with the Jaws theme. That's an iconic classic from this one. I definitely could see, you know, the exhausted Michael Keaton as if he was always preparing to go into battle, trying to take care of the kids in the house on his own. I definitely remember Ann Jillian as the sexy neighbor 
And Martin Mull, yeah, as the sleazy boss. I mean, these are wonderful actors and big stars that were in this movie. And, of course, the great Terry Garr as the wife with the good job who's the breadwinner. I'll make this simple. I, I just have fond memories of this being a fun, heartwarming film. Michael Keaton doing his thing, that being the lovable, relatable, quirky, everyman with the unique voice. He just does have such a unique voice who has great comic timing, a talent for physical comedy, a guy who could go big at any time, but then also bring it down for the bittersweet, more intimate moments. And it just kind of has a feel-good message about family, some light commentary maybe on gender roles and what it means to be a working parent versus a stay-at-home parent. And uh, that's it. I mean, really, that's it. I've always loved this movie, and I still love it today, and I'll save some of that for my initial thoughts and turn it over to you, Bill Bant, for your earliest memories. Yeah, so for me, growing up, my parents had odd work schedules, so there was a lot of times where my dad would have to play Mr. Mom being at home and take care of us and make dinner, and uh, it was usually just one of three recipes he would always make, uh, our favorite being the cheesy pasta. He didn't do much of the cleaning. Dishes, he did do dishes. Didn't touch the laundry, but he kept us alive, so that was good. So this movie was something we experienced growing up as kids, and this movie was a staple on HBO. Uh, it felt like it was on every other month, and yeah, um, that was where I watched it for the first time with my family, and the jokes at that age just hit the mark for me. Every time it came back on HBO, we would watch it again, and then we'd eventually tape it and watch it God knows how many times. Calling the vacuum cleaner Jaws, which had a mind of its own, was just great. The many references to Rocky throughout the movie, because growing up in Philadelphia, Rocky was a huge thing. So all the Rocky stuff was cool. There you go. Sure. Playing poker for coupons hit because my grandmother was a huge poker player. And every time we would go to my grandmother's house, she'd always make us play card games. And we usually played for like pennies or candy. So the fact they were playing for coupons, I was like, oh, okay, that's almost the same kind of thing. Schooner Tuna, the tuna with a heart, the silly race at Ron Richardson's house. Even though I had never seen Chariots of Fire, I recognized the music that they were playing during that mm -hmm. race because my mom had the soundtrack. She used to play it all the time. But it was funny, too, because I thought growing up, oh, I'm going to do events like that where I do these weird obstacle race stuff. I thought that was kind of so normal. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. Normal stuff, even though the jobs my parents had, we didn't do anything like that. But I just saw for sure someday I'm going to I'm going to run a race like that. I'm going to win. The kids trashing the bathroom on Jack's interview. That looks so fun as a kid, but I know I would never do that or get away with it. So I just thought it was cool. It's like oh, the fact that the kids <laughs> are doing that. I thought that was just great. And of course, the whoopee, because my brother, who was around six at the time, he was going through his whoopee phase. So, of course, we re nicknamed his blanket that he had the Wooby. so yeah the Wooby was a big deal but yeah overall just thought the movie was a ton of fun and made me a huge huge fan of michael keaton if michael keaton yeah. was going to be in a movie i was going to watch it just like you this was my first experience with michael keaton and then eventually i got a little older then i saw night shift because then that became a, a little bit more appropriate but we've talked about night shift in a previous podcast absolutely right so that's my earliest memories great stuff man always fun Let's move on to initial thoughts. What are some initial thoughts about Mr. Mom? Absolutely. Well, why don't we start with Mr. Mom himself, Michael Keaton? We can't talk about him enough. We've talked about him already. We're going to continue to talk about him a lot. He plays Jack Butler, Mr. Mom. 
And oh gosh, what can you say about Michael Keaton? I'm going to go over his filmography just a bit, but to give you a little background, he was born to Leona Elizabeth, a homemaker, and George A. Douglas, a civil engineer and surveyor. And after he had made an unsuccessful attempt at stand-up comedy, it led him to working as a TV cameraman in a cable station. Uh, he came to realize he wanted to work in front of the camera. Keaton first appeared on TV in several episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in 1968, which is crazy. Then in the mid to late 70s, he would go on to just kind of pop up on some popular TV shows like Maud and the Mary Tyler Moore Hour. But around that time, this is when he decides to change his name. Now, I say that because if you think about what I started off with in describing his background, he was born to... Leona Elizabeth and George A. Douglas, which would make him Michael Douglas. So it wasn't till the mid to late 70s there where he decides to change his name and goes with Keaton. So yeah, change his name to Michael Keaton. Then he took on a co-starring role alongside Jim Belushi in the short-lived comedy series Working Stiffs in 1979, which showcased his comedic talent. And then that led to his co-starring role in Night Shift, which we did on this very podcast. Uh, so there's a, just a little bit of bo- background and then going into his filmography. I always have to mention this. If I see this in somebody's filmography, and this is, I think, probably the third time I've mentioned this. In 1979, he was an episode of the TV miniseries Studs Lonigan. Oh, my God. Yes, that is our third <laughs> mention of Studs Lonigan. <laughs> <laughs> I just love Harry Hamlin, Studs Lonigan. I forget who else was in that. <laughs> yeah, I just thing. remember Harry Hamlin. Yeah. Gotta, gotta mention it. Uh, so yes, in 82, he does Night Shift. In 83, he does the film we're covering today, Mr. Mom. And in 84, Johnny Dangerously. What an 80s run here. In 86, he does Gung Ho and Touch and Go. In 87, he does The Squeeze. In 88, he has an uncredited role and She's Having a Baby. Then in 88, here we go. Beetlejuice, Clean and Sober. In 89, he does The Dream Team. Also in 89, I'm Batman. Yeah. Batman. Hell of a run in the 80s. 1990 does Pacific Heights. I'm just going to rattle these off, man. One Good Cop, Batman Returns, Much Ado About Nothing, My Life, The Paper, Speechless, Multiplicity, Jackie Brown, Desperate Measures, Out of Sight. So he does a lot of these films through the 90s. Then we get into the 2000s, and this is where it gets a little weird, as all of us know that are huge fans of Michael Keaton, because he kind of just fades away, just falls off the face of the earth. Where did he go? What happened? I'm still not quite sure. But then he starts like a little bit of a resurgence. One of my favorite roles of his is Captain Gene Mach in the film The Other Guys in 2010, when he's constantly quoting TLC songs. He's like the, 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 the captain of the police department. He's hilarious in it. Uh, he did a film called Blindsided in 2013. He did the reboot of RoboCop in 2014. Does Need for Speed in 2014. But here we go. He does Birdman. Or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. And that was a big one. And that's that's his big comeback. And that was nominated for Best Picture. And then he in 2015, he's in Spotlight, which won Best Picture. Did Birdman win Best Picture? I think it might have. I thought it did, because he was nominated too. And he yeah, lost. it did. It did. Yeah, so he does Birdman, and then he does Spotlight, and both of those win Best Picture. In 2016, he plays Ray Kroc in The Founder. And then now he's in the Marvel Universe and he's doing Spider-Man Homecoming. He's Adrian Toomes, a.k.a. Vulture. That's in 2017. And Michael Keaton's back in our lives and bigger, better than ever. 
Here's a couple other big ones in 2020. He's in the trial of Chicago 7. And also in 2021, he's in the TV miniseries, which he produces and stars in Dope Sick, which I just binged watched. Oh, yeah. In the last like two days. I watched all the episodes. It's excellent. That won some awards, right? He won an Emmy for it. Okay, yeah. And then, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Batman is coming back. We hope so. Right, because he's supposed to be in The Flash, which is supposed to come out next year. He was supposed to be in Batgirl, which was completed but then scrapped. We don't know if that'll ever see the light of day. The rumors, there's in there just rumors, are that it may show up on streaming at some point down the line. Who knows? I would love to see our guy, Michael Keaton, as Batman once again, show up in some sort of multiverse version in the DCEU world again. So I have a feeling we will. What else can we say about Michael Keaton, but that I know Bill Bant and I are huge, huge fans. And I specifically recall when our film team, that's Bill Bant, myself, and our friend Marwan, had formed our little independent film production team known as Waterwell Pictures. We would discuss writing a feature film and selling it, and it would always be helpful in order to market it would be to, you know, attach an A-list star. You hear this often. Give them a juicy scene. Give them a juicy death scene or something in the movie. But who would that star be? And Michael Keaton was always like our guy. Oh, yeah. He would always come up in conversation. Yeah, like if we could get Michael Keaton to come and do a few scenes in our movie, we just got to write him the, a juicy part or give him a really good, a good death scene. Either way, we love Michael Keaton. And he is now 71 years old and still going strong. Can't get enough of the guy. Now moving on to the other protagonist in this film, Terry Garr, who plays Carolyn Butler, wife to Jack Butler. Her career dates all the way back to 1963. She began her career as a teenager with small roles in television and film in the early 1960s, including appearances as a dancer in six, count them, six Presley musicals. That's Elvis Presley. Looking at her filmography a little bit here in the 60s, 1966, she was in an episode of Batman, the TV series. She plays the girl outside rink. She was uncredited, but that's her credit on IMDb. That was the episode Instant Freeze of the original Batman television series. She was in an episode of Star Trek in 1968, one of our favorite films of all time. She plays Inga in Young Frankenstein from 1974, probably my favorite Terry Garr performance or role. Here's a little crossover with Michael Keaton and Terry Garr. Terry Garr was in an episode of that show Maud in 1975, and so was Michael Keaton. He was not on the show for another couple of years, but they both were on that show. 1977, she's in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Ever heard of it? 1980, here we go. We're getting into the 80s. 80s, uh, Witch's Brew. 81, One from the Heart. She's in Honky Tonk Freeway, The Escape Artist. She does uh, an episode of Fairy Tale Theater. She's in 1982's Tootsie. That's a big one. In 1983, she was in The Sting 2. In 83, she's also in The Black Stallion Returns. Then uh, moving on to 1989, she's in Let It Ride, which was one of my Under the Radar films in our mini-sode. I love that film. And skipping all the way ahead to 1994, she plays Helen Swanson. And one of the all-time comedy classics, Dumb and Dumber. Yes. And she's uh, had continued to work uh, since then. But uh, a little bit more about Michael Keaton and Terry Gart and their relation to Batman. Now, we know Michael Keaton obviously plays the title character in the 89 film Batman and then Batman Returns in 92. While Terry Gart guest starred and was, like I said, in the original series, 
But then she had a later regular role as Mary McGinnis in Batman Beyond, the animated movie in 1999, as well as Batman Beyond Return of the Joker in the year 2000. Lastly, and unfortunately, Terry Garr, who was was, uh, diagnosed with multiple uh, sclerosis in 1999, was hospitalized in December 2006 after she suffered a brain aneurysm. She remained in a coma for a week. Thankfully, Garr recovered and briefly returned to acting before officially retiring in 2011. I did not know this, Bill Bant, but this is in Mr. Mom. The movie is in Aaron Spelling production. Yes. Third feature film made by television producer Aaron Spelling, who recounted in his memoir, I couldn't find a film that was suitable to take my kids to, so we made one. There you go. I also either had forgotten or didn't realize that this was written by John Hughes. I don't know why that slipped my mind. You know, we just focus on some of the big ones, I suppose. Although this story does not take place in the Chicago suburbs. This is in Detroit. Here's an initial thought, Bill Bant. The kids are great in this movie. I love the kids in this movie, man. Shout out to Frederick Kohler as Alex Butler, the older child who's not that old at all. How old is he, actually? Are we thinking? Seven? Yeah, I was going to say eight. Yeah, seven or eight. And then I'm trying to pronounce the younger brother's name here. His The actor's name. Talison Jaffe is what I'm going to go with. He plays Kenny Butler, the younger son. And then you have two young actresses who plays the, the baby, Meg, Megan Butler. They were Courtney and Brittany White. The boys, man, they have some great uh, lines, great delivery. There's a moment with the baby daughter, Megan, which is just really funny in the beginning when they're all having breakfast. And Michael Keaton is just like has got one foot out the door. He's got to get to work. And the baby daughter, she just hilarious. Says she just f- is focused on him, and she just watches him go off to work. And it just feels like she's actually his daughter. It's like all the kids were really in sync. I felt like, and they all had great chemistry with both Terry Gar and Michael Keaton. Bill Band, I was going to make this like whole commentary before I actually rewatched the film about how this was a movie of its time, that being the eighties, and this is nineteen eighty three, and how it was looking at gender roles in a specific way. And what was the normal then as to who was the provider and who was the breadwinner or who was supposed to be and how the social views and family dynamic has changed to this day. But then I rewatched it and I'm like, this isn't really that much of a commentary on that. It's just the fact that, well, the dad, he he's an auto engineer and he lost his job and the mom had to get a job. So she got a job and now she's an executive at an agency. There's no real, well, no, I'm the man. I need to stay home and be the provider beating his chest kind of thing. There's no real issue about that, or they're not really trying to make a comment on that. It's just a comedy about a role reversal, as you said in the beginning. And that's where the comedy is. It's really, really quite lighthearted. So I can scratch any of my planned commentary on how times have changed and how we view the whole gender role swapping and things like that differently. Either way, here's a comment I have, or initial thought I have, Bill Bant. Apparently, a lot of the ADR, which is an acronym for additional dialogue recording, was done in echo chamber. (laughs) Did you notice that, Bill? No, I actually didn't. Well, I watched this on Vudu, and it was excellent quality, and everything was great. But you could tell when lines were ADR'd because there was a real echo on the lines. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it was really obvious. Uh, Let us know if somebody else picked up on that. Please email us, tweet us. Regardless, finally... Last initial thought, this just reminds me of my appreciation for all that the stay-at-home parent has to do. Here's something, Bill Bant. I mean, in my brief experience dating a, a single mother, 
and how much I learned from that and my appreciation for all that she had to do in taking care of her child, all the multitasking, the high functioning type A repetition as a mother, all the having to keep one eye on the kid all the time. If you're a parent, I appreciate you because the sheer amount of work responsibility, multitasking, attention, et cetera, it's a huge, huge responsibility. And it can be exhausting to think about, much less do. I don't have kids of my own, but again, I've witnessed it. And this movie just reminds me of some of, again, past relationships and, and of course, my relationships with my own parents who've had to be the stay-at-home parent. And I just want to shout out to mom, man, all that she had to do for myself and my sister. So those are some of my initial memories. Uh, always love to see Edie McClurg pop up in a John Hughes film. She plays the checkout lady at the supermarket. The movie is a pleasure to watch. You mentioned it, Bill Bant, only an hour and 31 minutes. It's on cruise control. I laugh out loud multiple times. This was a, a lot of fun to revisit and just so, so easy to watch. And uh, I'll just turn it over to you. What are your What are your initial thoughts, Bill Bant? Yes, initial thoughts. What makes this movie work? Everyone is likable. That's what it is. Everyone is likable. Michael Keaton is <laughs> likable. Terry Garr is likable. The kids are likable. The technicians who come to the house are likable. The other mommies in the movie are likable. Even Martin Mole is a likable bad guy. Great casting. Yeah. The child actors in the movie, I know you liked them. I gave them a solid B. I think coming off The Shining and talking about Danny Lloyd's performance. <laughs> right. It, it's hard to compare, but sometimes their lines felt a little wooden, but they gave some great facial expressions. Mm -hmm. They did so much with their faces that would make me laugh. And my favorite ones being from Frederick Kohler, who played Alex, when he tells... Michael Keaton Jack that his uh, grilled cheese is cold. Right. And Jack at that point, he's ironing and he takes the iron and just presses it into the grilled cheese sandwich and melts it. And the expression that Alec makes at that, that kills me every time. It's just awesome. He just stares right back at him. Yeah. Yeah. Like he kind of just, did you he, just do that? Yeah. He kind of <laughs> does like a little twitch. Like, whoa, what's going on there? And then. Jack just kind of flips on the sandwich and he looks at it like he has to I peel really it be, off yeah, the iron. No, it's like, should I, should I really be eating this? Should I be eating this? So, yeah, yeah. I should have saved it for moments. I did think there was a couple of cringeworthy moments in the movie about a woman's place in the home. I know growing up for me, both my parents worked. The neighborhood I lived in, a majority of the families, both the parents worked. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly some stereotyping on the the women's role, but sign of the time. This really bothered me was Carolyn's coworkers in the workplace. It's like her first day and they're openly disrespecting her at that first meeting. That really bugged me. Mm. I'm like, you're supposed to be bringing someone in. Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah, I agree. And I'm like, I'm sorry you, you hated her opinions, but your shit sucked. So I agree yeah. with her. That was just kind of weird. Because like I said, it's a short movie. I get it. It's a comedy. We don't want to tack on too much non-comedic stuff to see what Carolyn's relationship was with the other mommies because you never do see that. She mm, always seems sure. to be the outsider. And then just because I like Terry Garr and Michael Keaton so much, I would like to see them play off each other a little bit more um, just because of the role reversal and how it's maybe affecting just the household and how things are run. They just have that kind of one big scene. And that's about it. I was like, oh, just need it a little, little bit more overall. Fair. I think that's, yeah, I think that's fair. I was like, yeah, just, just add five minutes. That's all. 
yeah, overall, it's still a fun family film. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I appreciate those initial thoughts. Absolutely. And I think I agree that it is a sign of the times, meaning there are the inherent stereotypes it being that in the early 80s, the man that goes off to work, the woman stays home and is the mom and takes care of the motherly duties. But I did appreciate that the film wasn't harping on that too much, meaning Michael Keaton's character, Jack Butler, has no issue with her getting a job. He may feel somewhat emasculated because he feels as though he lost his job and he hasn't been able to find a new job and he's not providing an income, so to speak. He's never trying to hold her back. Or I don't see anyone else in the film or any other characters looking down on her for trying to be a working woman or, or to have a career. I think he, you know, is still supportive of her. It's just more about the lighthearted comedy aspect of the fact that this guy has to stay home and take care of the house and the kids when he has no idea what he's doing. Yeah, I do agree. Here's a dad who's just not trained in the ways of taking care of the kids and staying at home and doing the day to day duties and therein lies the comedy and the movie doesn't set out to be a comment like a social commentary in any way it's more of it's just about the light-hearted comedy of michael keaton making a fool of himself yeah it does definitely does play into more of the slapsticky aspects of it yeah because i mean there's the party at ron's where ron kind of makes a comment that you know his wife's working or not but nothing in their neighborhood or among their friends that they look down upon them because Jack's not working and Carolyn's now the breadwinner. And that's something they could have possibly explored. I don't think they needed to. Correct. I'm sure if they remade it today, there would be something like that in it. Yeah. I think you make a really good point about wanting to see a little bit more of the relationship aspect between Jack and Carolyn Butler. Because yes, Michael Keaton and Terry Gard, they're wonderful. They're great together, have great chemistry. They're a lot of fun. You want them to be successful together as parents, etc. Yeah, you don't get a lot of them together in the movie. No. Okay, so let's move on to favorite scenes and moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from Mr. Ma? All right, let's get into it. So I'm going to go with my moment number one. I say, you know what? There's always a list. The list. Moms make a list. You got to do it. I get it. I have to make a list too for myself. But moms, oh boy, yeah, you got to make a list. So whether you're house sitting, dog sitting, parenting, or being a parent for the day, well, you got to make a list. And in the beginning of the film, when now in this premise, in this fiction, Carolyn Butler has had to get a job because Jack Butler, Michael Keaton, has lost his job as the as an auto engineer at the plant. And he's been looking for a new job, hasn't got one. So she goes back to her resume and, and decides to rely on some of her uh, somewhat limited but valuable experience, ends up getting a job as an ad executive. And it's a good job. And she's about to start on her first day. And so when she goes off to work, well... We've got Jack, who's going to be staying home and taking care of the kids. And there's a lot to do throughout the day. So she leaves him the list. And here we go. So she starts breaking it down for him as she's uh, all dressed up, looking great. Well, she's about to leave. So she says, now remember, when Kenny starts talking to his breakfast, that means he's finished, right? And Alex has to be school at 7.30 and pickup is at 1 o'clock sharp. Now when Megan starts rubbing her little ears, it means it's time for her nap and don't let her sleep past 11.30 because then she won't go down for her afternoon nap, which is at 1.30. 
And I love this because she's going through it so quickly. And Michael Keaton's going, right, right, got it, got it, right, right. And then when Terry Garr says, don't let her sleep past 1130 because then she won't go down for her afternoon nap, which is at 130, you hear Michael Keaton go, one o'clock, right. He's already messed up. He's already got it wrong. It's just really funny. But that's it. I just, that was my first favorite moment. I love the list. It just cracks me up because she can't repeat it enough. And it's to her, it's second nature. And it's just bang, bang, bang. And it's so much. It's so much. And then immediately you're like going, oh my God, there's so much to remember. There's so many details. No wonder there has to be a list. Why isn't he writing this down? And immediately he's just like, yeah, no, no, I got it. I got it. I know my own kids. I know my way around the house. I know what needs to be done. I get the gist of it. He has no clue and he's already getting it wrong from the get-go. It's funny. Good catch. I don't think I caught him saying one o'clock. Good call yeah, on that one. I watched it a couple times. Like, did he already get the time wrong? That's awesome. For me, my first favorite scene is Jacko's food shopping. Awesome. I have that too. Yeah. yeah okay. Great. Yeah. So he's got to go to the grocery store. He is the only male customer at the grocery store. They made sure right. that it's all females. And he's dropped off Alex at school. So he's at the store with Kenny and Megan. And of course, I get this cart all the time. The goddamn cart with the bad wheel that's all flopping of around. Course. Oh, I know. I don't know how many times I go to a store and I, I pull out like three or four carts until I actually find one that's suitable. Or even then you're stuck with that last one and it's got the bad wheel and then you got to take it to the store. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was like, oh yeah, this this is me. So he's got Kenny and Megan in the cart and he's going through the aisles. And of course, he really doesn't know where anything is. I think there's one part he goes down one of the aisles and knocks over all these cans. And then you hear over the loudspeaker, clean up in aisle seven. And right. he goes to the produce department and he sees on the list he's supposed to get grapefruit and they have all this grapefruit stacked in one of the displays and he decides to pick from the middle knocking over all the grapefruit clean up the produce so then he goes to the deli and he's supposed to just get ham and cheese but he doesn't realize there's 18 different types of ham thousands of kinds of different cheese and all the other women in the store are also waiting at the deli counter and they're all huddled around him and he's asking her for the list of what kind of ham and she's reading them all off. And he's like, all right, forget that. Just go to cheese. And then she's reading off all the names of the different kind of cheese. And then you can see he's totally confused because it's twice as many. And he's like, could you go back to ham? And you can tell at, at that point, all, all the women are going to kill him. And then my favorite part, because of this movie, like you can ask my wife, I joke about this stuff all the time. You see him look at the list and he just does this. Oh, Yep, yep. And he goes, he has to get the uh, the Kotex like maxi pads. And you can see that he's inching, make sure no one looks, grabs the package, almost kind of tries to hide it and throws it into the cart. And then he finally gets a line. And, and that's where we see um, Edie McClurg. McClurg, she's playing the cashier. She's running off his items. And of course, the Kotex is like, oh, I think these are on sale. Let me check. He's like, no, 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 you don't have to check it. I would have been the same <laughs> way. That would be me. And she's like, um, is, is there a special price on the... And he's like, that's okay. You don't... He just literally grabs the right. No, you don't... That's okay. I got it. And then he realizes Kenny is missing. And there's another oh, kid that's, in his cart. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. So then he grabs this other kid, leaving Megan alone now in the checkout counter. And he's running through the supermarket trying to find Kenny. 
And this kid's older kid, he's probably nine. I don't know why he's not in school. And he starts to mom, mom. And Michael Keaton grabs a thing of spaghetti in the bag and gives it to him. Like, here, here's some spaghetti. Like, that's supposed to shut him up. The kid just tosses it on the ground, which is just hilarious. And then he <laughs> finds Kenny with this other mom. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll swap your kid for my kid. And the mom's not really paying attention. She's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And he puts the kid into the mom's cart. And grabs Kenny and takes off. And then the mom does like a double take. Like, wait, this isn't my kid. She yells, I don't have kids. Yeah. (laughs) So then he runs back to the checkout counter. And now Megan's gone. (laughs) And he asks cashier, hey, have you seen a little girl? And the cashier, she's like, oh, yeah, really cute. He's like, I can't find her. She's like, you left your kid alone in the supermarket? And, of course, now he here he goes with Kenny, running around the store again, trying to find Megan. And then that's when we run into Joan, who right. we find out is one of Carolyn's friends. Supposedly, Carolyn has warned Joan that Jack is going supermarket shopping to kind of keep an eye on him. I guess she has seen the disaster that Jack is going through. And they're having a conversation. And all of a sudden you hear over the loudspeaker again, clean up in aisle seven. And he <laughs> just turns like, we weren't even in aisle seven. Right. Yeah. But of course, at this point, you see that Joan's a little flirty with Jack. There might be something going on that we don't know about, but that'll definitely be explored later in the movie. And then it cuts to them leaving the supermarket and they're pushing their carts to the cars and Jack unloads the stuff. And that's when Joan gives Jack her number. And it was kind of funny because he's like, oh, what, what does it say on the bottom underneath? And she's like, call anytime. Oh, anytime. Okay. <laughs> And Jillian playing the role of Joan. Yeah, she was such a big deal in the 80s. And it was Mm -hmm. just so weird not seeing her as a blonde. But it made sense because of Terry Garr being a blonde. But uh, yeah, I kind of liked it. You saw that in the research. I saw that as well. Yeah, that they purposefully did that because uh, they didn't want her competing directly against Terry Garr and her look. Great stuff, man. That scene, uh, were you finished with that? No, yeah, that was it. Okay, yeah, I didn't want to cut you off. Fantastic. I had it as my first favorite scene. That shopping store sequence is a comedy of errors. It is hilarious. It is wonderful. And it is worth watching over and over again. Just some things that I picked up on as well. I mean, right at the beginning, when he's got that damn shopping cart, he grabs that cart and there's no designated lanes. There's kind of unwritten rules and where you're supposed to be driving your shopping cart around. And immediately he rams right into another lady's cart and she's all grumpy and goes, I have the right of way. He doesn't even want to bother with it. He grabs like a bag of pretzels out of his cart. And he goes, here, we'll settle out of court and throws it into her cart. That's awesome. <laughs> like, here, just take this. And you just hear her. It's like really subtle under her breath. She goes, ah, oh, weirdo, and goes right past him. But then, you, like you said, he, yeah, he knocks over the canned beans, the stacked grapefruit, which he blames on Kenny, which is hilarious. <laughs> of course, because for people understand her. But man... Again, I can relate. So when you have that list, and if you're not familiar with the layout of the grocery store, it takes even longer. So you're just going all around. But when he's at the deli counter, man, my heart goes out to him because it's like it's just embarrassing when you're having to go. I, what am I? Oh, there's multiple kinds of this. Where, what do I, where do I even begin? Just give me the regular whatever it is. Make it easy. It's But it's never that easy. Yeah, man, with the kids, it's just when he turns around, it's just so strange. He looks back at his cart when he's standing in the checkout line and Kenny's gone. And there's another kid in the place of Kenny, but carrying that kid through the lanes and, and he's just, ma, ma. 
absolutely amazing. Just wonderful. One thing after another. Great scene. Good call. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'm going to take it back really quick to my favorite moment, number two, because this is where the day starts. You had mentioned this, Bill Bant, because you'd said during the shopping store sequence that Jack has already dropped Alex off at school. Yes. Well, this is another favorite moment of mine is when he's dropping Alex off at school. Because again, I have a little bit of experience with this is dropping off. My ex-girlfriend had a son and I got a little taste of this. And now, Bill, I'm sure you can relate to this somewhat. And I didn't note that this is a freaking circus, man. This is a whole thing. And there is a system that you have to learn and adapt to and become part of. And and you got to follow the rules. So in this movie, as Jack is dropping Alex off at school, presumably be here for the first time. First of all, it's pouring rain. And he's got the kids in the car. And he's dropping them off at school. And there's cars everywhere. Horns are honking. And Alex says to dad, dad, you passed it. Dad, you're doing it wrong because he's past the drop off area. It's always like that's like a half circle that you have to drive into that goes nearest the entrance to the school. And there's a direction that you need to go in for the drop off. And he passes it and enters the half circle from the wrong direction. And of course, Alex is like, dad, you're doing it all wrong. Mommy doesn't do it like this. And then Jack is like, well, why are they all honking? He's like, because you're doing it wrong. So he's like, don't tell me I'm doing this wrong. I know how to do this. Pulls in. And there's the woman standing there who's like the, I don't, what do you call that person who's kind of like the the uh, drop-off control person? Yeah, like so it's like traffic a traffic control, moderator. Yeah. Like uh, traffic. The volunteer mom at the schools. Right. So in this place, uh, or in this instance, it is the character of Annette who we also learn at some point is one of Carolyn, his wife's friends. And she is playing the role of the traffic monitor here, the volunteer. And she says, hi, Jack, I'm Annette. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> this is what I tell all my new mommies. We enter from the south and exit from the north, and then we just do the reverse when we pick up. This way our little ones don't have to walk between the cars to get to the learning facility, okay? Move it out. And remember, south to drop off and north to pick up. He's like shell-shocked. He doesn't know what the hell's going on. Drops off Alex, kind of rolls up his window. Again, it's raining. And he has this look on his face. He's like, okay, yeah, that's a good system. And here's my favorite moment is because there's another mother in another car driving the opposite way, just staring at him. And she yells at the top of her lungs, South to drop off, moron. (laughs) I just laughed out loud. And I rewound it just to break down the seat a little bit for my notes. And I laughed and laughed again. It's wonderful because parents know out there dropping off the kids at school. Sometimes it can get pretty vicious fighting for parking, passing each other, trying to get in line. And sometimes the line is so long because there's a lot of kids that attend the school and it kind of goes out into the main street. So you got to get in line. People are jockeying for position. And then if you break one of the rules, you're going to hear a lot of horns. For me, for my next favorite scene, all right, so there's a lot going on in this one, so hopefully I, I remember everything. Jack is just having a bad day running the house. So Carolyn's off to work. All the kids are home, and Jack is trying to do house chores. And, of course, he's going to do it his own way. And the first thing he's going to do is laundry. He's doing the sheets and the blankets, and um, he's taking everything downstairs to the washing machine. And Alex is down there with him and he's got probably three loads he should be doing separately, but he decides he's going to do everything at once. 
and they're literally just cramming everything into the washing machine. And Alex kind of realizes that his dad's doing it wrong, and he tries to say something, and Jack's not going to hear any of it. And he puts everything in the machine, and then he looks at all the different kinds of laundry detergent, and he's just going to decide. He's just going to make his own brand, and he just starts mixing everything and putting way too much powder and liquid and yeah. I think there's a spray starch he shoots in there a couple times. Oh, I love it. Yeah, when he puts everything into the, the measuring right. cup tub thing and like stirs it up, like it's like a perfect mix that he's come up with and then adds the spray. Great yeah. stuff. So while he's putting that in, Alex decides he wants to make lunch. And he asks his dad if he can make lunch. And he's like, yeah, go ahead. So Alex decides he's going to make some chili. So he's cooking on the stove. And Jack is upstairs and Megan is in one of the walkers and she knocks over a plant. So now there's dirt all over the, the rug. And at that point, so all this is going on. And at the same time, too, all these, we have a TV technician that shows up. The exterminator shows up. The the guy who's adjusting the pilot on the water heater, which is like, oh, my God, I forgot that people used to do that. Yeah. So he's trying to juggle all these people coming in, trying to clean up the, the mess in the rug. And Alex is trying to make chili. And he asks Alex, who's cooking chili at one point, he's like, hey, where does mommy keep the vacuum cleaner? And Alex goes, oh, you mean Jaws? He's like, oh, mommy calls the vacuum <laughs> yeah, cleaner Jaws? Is, yeah. Okay. So we go. he goes in the closet to find the vacuum cleaner. And this thing looks like it was made in 1954. It's one of these super old models and he starts vacuuming the floor. And I think that's when the exterminator shows up. And that was kind of a funny scene. Cause he's knocking the exterminator is knocking on the, the window. He's like exterminator. And Jack's like, what exterminator, what exterminator. And then, you know, he's finally shuts off the vacuum and lets the guy in. And then the guy goes downstairs to, to exterminate. And at the same time at the back door, Pilot, the guy's the pilot. He's knocks on the door. Alex lets him in. He's like, "Oh, I'm here to fix the pilot." So Alex goes to take him down the basement to show him where the water heater is. And of course, right. when they go down the basement, the exterminator is a little bit worried because, of course, the washing machine, which has been overstuffed, is literally like bouncing around the basement. Yeah, and they can see that there's going to be a big mess going on there. And then the TV technician shows up. I think she was showed up first, though. And she's like, yeah, there's something wrong with your horizontal hold. And he's like, I guess my wife would know that. So she goes upstairs to figure out what's going on with the TV. Then the pilot guy and the exterminator come running up because, of course, now the water hoses to the washing machine have broken off. And now water's spraying everywhere. So Jack goes runs down to fix <laughs> that. And now Jaws, the vacuum cleaner, has come to life. Right. And starts chasing Kenny around the house. And Kenny's worried because we haven't really gotten to this. So Kenny has this blanket. He calls it his wooby. It's a security blanket. He takes it everywhere right. with him. And, of course, they're playing the theme of Jaws. And Jaws, the vacuum cleaner, is chasing Kenny to get his blanket. Wooby. In the meantime, also, I hope everybody's following along. Alex, who was making his chili, since he has left it unattended, the chili's starting to burn. Right. So Jack runs downstairs trying to turn off the water to the washing machine. 
And it's kind of a funny yeah. scene because he's trying to grab the hoses because the hoses are just whipping all over the place. And he's trying to turn off the water, but when he tries to turn off the it's water, really funny. He loses yeah. the grip of one of the hoses, so the, the hose either starts whipping him in the face or spraying water. And then he finally gets him off, and then he hears screaming upstairs because it's Kenny. So he runs upstairs. And Jaws has gotten a hold of the whoopee and it's trying to suck it in. It's like, dad, dad, dad. So he attacks, basically beats the crap out of the vacuum to get that to stop. And I love that moment because does he He's manage like to pull? Yeah. He pulls the whoopee out and then runs away as the and then goes around like through the kitchen and comes back through right. and then like dives and chokes the yes. vacuum it's like surprise he tackles attack. the vacuum right it's hilarious so then suppose everything's taken care of and you have the three technicians are by the front door and they're all just kind of looking at Jack and then we see Megan come in on the little walker and so she somehow right, got a hold Megan. yeah got a hold of the can of chili and the woman who's the TV technician is like you fed baby chili? You can't do that. And then you see all the technicians just run out of the house. And then the next scene, you find out why. Because now poor Megan's got the runs and she's killing diapers left and right. Oh, which is wonderful because that's the another great shot of Michael Keaton coming out with... Does it, he's got goggles on because he's changing her diapers repeatedly. Oh, yeah. And he asks Alex, where are the extra diapers? He's got the gloves, the goggles. And does he have a clothespin on his nose? Yes. And then, of course, Megan is just letting loose. Yep. And he goes back in. And he's like, holy mackerel. Yep. And you just hear kind of like a giggle. You're like, oh, where, boy. Where does mommy keep the extra diapers? Cowards. <laughs> holy cow, man. You managed to get through it. I don't know if I could have. And I purposefully left that scene off my list because I was hoping you would tackle it. There's so many moving pieces. Yeah, way too many. So moving. much going on. And it's a big chunk there. And it is just... Again, comedy of errors is very farcical because there's so many people kind of coming and going. It's like watching a pl uh, play on stage where it's all revolving doors and characters coming and going and everything goes wrong from the washing machine that seems to come to life and the vacuum cleaner is just classic with the Jaws theme. The music's fantastic. It's just increasingly chaotic as the scene goes. Everybody's great in it. So many great characters. It was as chaotic as my description of the scene. That's what it was. It's confusing just when you're thinking about it. You're like, oh my God. Yeah, who what, comes what in? What happens yeah. where? Yeah. Shout out to everyone who, from the exterminator to the TV repair woman to uh, the guy checking the pilot light on the water heater. They're all hilarious. And as they run out and get into their cars and like speed off and they almost hit each other, it's just, it's a mess. But that's where you really get an understanding of. Even though it's way over the top and it is farcical in a way, et cetera, this comedy of errors, you get a sense of just what it's going to take the amount of effort and attention and for Jack to figure out how to run the house and take care of the kids. It just ain't that easy. Nope. Just ain't that easy. Great stuff, man. Thanks for going over that. Uh, let me see here. I will go to then uh, my next favorite scene, which I am calling... The soap opera dream sequence. Oh, yes. I freaking love the scene. And I had forgotten about it. And when it began, I was already just laughing to myself. Basically, what's happened here is Jack hasn't been able to get a job. And Carolyn is just doing extremely well at the ad, as a, the ad agency as the now executive. And uh, she's just out of town a lot. She's just working her butt off. She comes home late at night. And he's really had to take over as Mr. Mom. So he's doing his darndest, 
but that still ain't quite good enough. And you see the house is basically in tatters. He's grown kind of half of a beard. He's got his favorite flannel on, but that's all he's wearing over his white t-shirt. He's become quite scruffy. And I don't know when the last time he's showered, but he's kind of in tatters. The kids are just kind of running and around doing whatever they want. They got food all over their faces, etc. He's like at one point in the kitchen next to the iron, the ironing board with the iron that's on is in the kitchen with him while he's watching the little TV. And he's now addicted to the young and the restless, the soap opera. One of those things where he probably didn't give a damn about soap operas or as some people like to call them their stories, which I always love. But at this point, he's been home so often that he's hooked on the soap opera. He's gotten to know the characters in the story. And he's following along, and the melodrama within the soap opera is just really funny. So he becomes invested. At one point, there's a phone call from Joan, and she calls to talk to him about one of the storylines in the soap opera, and he's talking to her about it, and he's totally into it. It's just really funny. Not to mention, he's just drinking beer all the time, just to cope. So he's got a little bit of a drinking problem on top of all this. So at one point, he's sitting on the couch, and of course, he's watching The Young and the Restless, And the music is playing and he's just kind of zoning out in his favorite flannel. Then the phone rings. And of course, who is it on the other line? But but Joan, the kind of sexy next door neighbor. And, you know, what had happened previous to this scene, and Bill also alluded to this earlier, is a really funny scene where, again, Carolyn's been out of town and Jack's home all the time. He's gotten to know the neighbors and the ladies around the town, you know, the neighborhood, and they've come over and he's formed like a poker night, kind of like ladies night. Now he's one of the ladies, but it's poker night or they're the guys or whatever it is. It's role reversal and it's poker night. Instead of chips, instead of money, they're using coupons, store coupons, which is brilliant because they just call out every 80s food label product uh, coupon. And it's just a real throwback. And, uh, then Carolyn had come home and interrupted it, and it's not a great scene. He's smoking a cigar and stuff. It's just a kind of a dirty scene. She's questioning, what the hell are you doing with all the n- female neighbors playing poker late at night? Regardless, Joan felt bad about it. So while we have Jack on the couch watching The Young and the Restless, and he's zoning out with his beer, the phone rings, and it's Joan. And she's apologizing for the other night, the girls' poker night. And uh, Jack's like, look, don't even worry about it. Me and Carolyn, we're not talking or doing anything else. And then Joan says, I'll be right there. Immediately after she says that, there's a knock at the door. She's already there. She walks in wearing high heels and an overcoat. She says, I came as fast as I could. And he's like, you sure did. <laughs> and she's like, you look great, Jack. And he's like, I, I do? <laughs> well, now this is great, too, because Carolyn has been a little bit critical of how Jack's let himself go. The fact that he's wearing the same flannel, he's putting on a little bit of, little bit of weight. The beard isn't quite fully grown in, etc. Now, here's sexy next door neighbor Joan, who's shown up like uh, immediately after calling with this trench coat on. And this we understand here. We already kind of know this has got to be a dream sequence, but we're just going with it. Right. She says, you look great, Jack. And he's like, I do. And he says, oh, OK, well, what do you think of this shirt? And she says, let me tell you about flannel. It gets me hot. <laughs> it's like. Uh, okay. Uh, Joan, do I look fat or overweight at all to you? And then she comes over to him and grabs him and says, I like a man with a little meat on his bones. He's like, oh, well, that's two. Okay. How about the beard? I mean, uh, Carolyn hates the beard. And she goes, I know. She removes her overcoat and is wearing nothing but red lingerie. 
best moment. Michael Keaton just turns away and goes, oh, my God. Because <laughs> she's standing there in front of with lingerie. She looks so hot. He's like, I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then, of course, Carolyn walks in, seeing them together. And there's lightning and thunder strikes. She catches Jack and Joan kissing, which is great because she's Jack, Jack. And while they're kissing, Jack actually holds up a finger like, wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> to yeah. let him finish the kiss. And she's like, Jack, how could you? And Joan, you were supposed to be my friend. And she says, he's too much man to be left alone, Carolyn. <laughs> so Carolyn pulls a gun from her purse. And then Jack's freaking out. She's like, don't, no, 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 no. What about the kids? What about the kids? And she's like, oh, don't worry about the kids. And she puts the silencer on the gun. And then there's a struggle. And Jack looks down all of a sudden. as the, Of course, the thunder strikes. The lightning goes off. And the gunshot at, goes off at the same time. And Jack looks down at his animal and sees the smoke rising, and he understands that he's been shot. And he goes, oh, shit. I love this shirt. And he goes for this great melodramatic death fall. And in the middle of it, wonderful moment, because as he falls backwards, he grabs the beer off the end table, takes a sip first. little little uh, stepping on trivia here, which is totally improv moment. And if you watch this scene... When he grabs the beer and takes the sip in the middle of his death sequence, Terry Gar and Ann Jillian are laughing, but their backs are to the camera, so you can't really see their faces. But you can tell if you're watching it or you're looking for it that they're laughing. And then Jack finally falls down, and there's a chalk outline already on the floor, but he's a little bit off to off center. So he looks over to the chalk outline and slides over to get right into the chalk outline. And as this dream sequence gets crazier and crazier, Ron Richardson, played by Martin Mull, he shows up. He's Carolyn's boss. We don't like him. And he walks over to Jack lying on the floor. And both he, Ron, and Carolyn are looking down over Jack. And Ron goes, Jeez, Carolyn, did you use a 38? And she goes, Ah, 38 or 39, which is a callback to the 220-221 line, which I did at the quote at the beginning. And of course, Ron's like, Well, tough luck, Jeff. Jack's like, It's Jack. It's Jack. 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 And then. <laughs> the younger no, 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 no. it's a great dream sequence it just cracks me up i love it it's it's really funny but that moment man when joan whips off the coat and she's there looking all really hot in a red lingerie and he just goes oh my god <laughs> gets me every time dude i think what i love about that scene is in the beginning before it breaks into the dream sequence and jack calls joan we see a shot of the kids outside playing and then when the sequence mm -hmm. happens, it's pouring rain out there. And you're like, the kids are still outside. Someone should go get the kids. <laughs> the kids are still outside. Right. They're going to get struck by lightning. I always think that. That's funny. Spoken as a true parent. Worried about the kids. But yeah, it is funny, the whole addiction thing to soap operas, because my wife still watches General Hospital. That's her yeah, man. 50 minutes that you cannot bother her. Because she has to watch her soap. I love it. I grew up with my mom watching Days of Our Lives. I know what it's all about. And still the same ridiculous plot lines, it seems like. All right, so going on to my last, it's like semi-moment, semi-scene. It's almost a carryover for what you just talked about. Because after the gene sequence happens, Jack realizes, I got to get my act together. Right. Shaves the beard, starts working out. Now he's in a routine. Now he's really getting into being the Mr. Mom role and things are coming together. 
And at the very end of all this happening, because they're playing, they're playing the theme from Rocky and he's getting the neighborhood mommies to work out and he's actually taking on other house projects. And the scene ends with him in front of the fireplace with Alex and Kenny and he takes the flannel shirt and he throws it into the fire and Kenny's standing right next to him and Kenny's got his wooby and he's holding on to his wooby and he kind of looks at Kenny like, all right, I got rid of my flannel. It's time for you to get rid of the wooby. And Kenny knows exactly what his dad's trying to do. And he's like, no way. And he just takes off. I love it. So this is what I have this as well. Oh, do you? Okay. Oh, absolutely. It's fantastic. Keep going. So Jack goes up to Kenny and Alex's room and Kenny is sitting on the floor and he's got his wooby. And Jack's like, it's time we had to talk about the wooby. And you can see Kenny's just terrified. No, no, no. Your whoopee's looking bad, bud. Because at this point, it's been eaten by Jaws. He's ripped it and it's been stapled back together. So, yeah, the poor whoopee's a mess. It, it has seen better days. And he's like, all right, Kenny, we've got to have a talk about the whoopee. And so I had to write this down. I understand that you little guys start off with your whoopies and you think they're great. And they are. They are terrific. But pretty soon, a whoopee isn't enough. We're out in the street trying to score an electric blanket or maybe a quilt. The next thing you know, you're strung out on bedspreads, Ken. That's serious. <laughs> and he says to Kenny, why don't you just give me the whoopee for a little bit, just on a trial basis, just to see how you do. And, you know, if you want it back, I'll, I'll give it back to you. And Kenny thinks about it and then just drops the greatest line which was supposedly ad-libbed, which even makes it better because I guess uh, the actor who played Kenny said he blanked on his line. And this is what came out of his mouth and they kept it. And he just goes, can I have a moment to myself, please? And Jack gets the blanket and he walks out and he goes to the top of the stairs and there's Alex waiting for him. And Jack sits next to Alex and Alex goes, had to be done, Dad. Had to be done. Just this is so great because he just feels like the adult in that moment. It's just like, oh, just a fun scene. Oh, man, when Alex puts his hand on Jack's shoulder, yeah, you had to do it. <laughs> oh man, just nailed it. It's really, really funny because it's hilarious, but it is bittersweet. Now, I personally had my security blanket, which I just called it Blanky. I had a real attachment to it as a kid around Kenny's age. And eventually you got to let it go. And it's tough, man. When that moment, when he says, can I have a moment to myself, please? Yeah. And then he crawls into his bed. And I just love that. Too, I was gonna say. So like, it, it almost feels kind of intentional, but it's just so cute because he lies down then puts his hands behind his head just to kind of think about, contemplate what just happened. Like, am I going to be able exactly to, what I, yeah. yeah. Am I going to be able to make it without my whoopee? I'm going to ponder my life now. We'll be really examine this moment. How am I going to do this? <laughs> it's really like almost way, just way too mature. Um, it's just really, really funny. So yeah, Ida too. The Whoopi talk. Freaking classic, man. Yeah. Uh, well, honestly, that's all I have, man. I had written. I, I'll just give a shout out to uh, the scene, which is in the middle. It's kind of where that quote, uh, the 220-221 quote comes from, where Ron Richardson comes to pick up Carolyn. And Jack is uh, trying to put on a show and the bravado wants to be like the man's man. And 
uh, stuff like that. That's a great scene. I just want to give a shout out to that scene. The Olympics at Ron Richardson's uh, company party. You mentioned that early in the beginning. That's a fun scene. You watch that and you're just like, you know, honestly, Bill Bant, uh, I luckily growing up had a tradition where we had a family picnic. We had an annual family picnic. I have a large extended family on my mother's side and we'd have the annual softball game and there'd be other sports we'd play. But that would be such a great idea to have something like that, like an annual family picnic, to have a race course Olympics. Oh, yeah. Type. I want to recreate that race course. Yeah. To have people compete in, you know, because usually like at these family picnics, sometimes we'd have like the, the potato sack race, oh, yeah. you know, the one legged race and things like that, uh, that you do, which is just goofy fun. It's it's just fun. Mm-hmm. You can never really grow out of it. But to have a race like that, they have set up for this Ron's company that the company party at his house is great. Uh, so shout out to that scene as well. But since you brought it up, just one thing that's funny about that race, if you've never seen the movie before, is Ron kind of coaxes Jack to get in the race. Right. Jack wants to win. But of course, all the other people in the race are like, oh, no, Ron wins. Ron wins the race every year. And Jack's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I, I don't work for the company. I, I can win this race. And they go, yeah, but your wife worked for the company. But Jack goes for it and that he's going to win. And all the other employees are trying to prevent him from winning. And it's great because they, they go yeah. through the obstacles and they're like pulling his leg or trying to trip him and then um, run the race. And then he makes eye contact with Carolyn and throws it. And then Ron just acts like, you know, he's the greatest thing in the world. I won again. Like, it's a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to mention those scenes because I know there's going to be some listeners that are just going to be, what about that moment? What about the scene? And this movie is chock full of great scenes and great moments. So I mm-hmm. uh, just wanted to mention them really quickly. The other thing about that scene where Ron Richardson shows up for the first time, that's the first time he's meeting Jack Butler and he comes in with the hat on backwards. He's got a chainsaw in his hand that he keeps revving and (laughs) doing the introductions. He can't hear Ron. It's just great. Yeah. You want beer? It's seven o'clock in the morning. Scotch? (laughs) How about a little trim on that beard, Ron? After he leaves. I love that line too. (laughs) That's great stuff, man. There's so many great moments. Let's take a little break to hear from our friends over at Crime of the Arts Podcast, a true crime podcast. Hey, everybody, I'm Lisa Brennan. And I'm Justin Trice. Are you a theater nerd or a movie buff? Are you interested in the world of fine art or the sleazy way celebrities break the law? Check out Crime of the Arts, a true crime comedy podcast that peeks behind the curtain to shine a light on the dark and untold truths of the creative arts. From film set mysteries to celebrity murders and art heists, we look past the bright lights to uncover what hides in the shadows. Join us each week when we both bring a surprise story to the episode with our pop culture-ridden sarcastic banter. Tune in every Wednesday to help get you over hump day. Crime of the Arts is available now everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Peace out, everybody. Peace out, everybody. (laughs) Now back to our show. So let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. Why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, and if it's not filed under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. So what do you have for Swiss cheese or complaints? Well, I'll tell you right off the bat, I didn't have a lot here, man. There's plenty. If you want to get nitpicky in it, we probably will here, to be honest. I just don't have a lot. This is kind of a question, but you can help me with it. Is this a hole or not? First of all, is it Caroline or Caroline? It's spelled like Caroline 
if you're watching the subtitles, if you look at the credits on IMDb, etc. But they say Carolyn. That's what I thought, yeah. Okay. So my question, it seems as though Carolyn rises through the ranks at the company really quickly. Very fast. And in the corporate system, I'm like, there's just no way if she's new, she would be still at some sort of entry level, maybe not like she's not working in the mailroom because she has some experience and education and a resume, et cetera. She has credentials, but she becomes Ron Richardson's right-hand person rather quickly. That was just a hole, I thought. It makes sense for the movie that so she can travel with him and she's making all the money, she's doing well, et cetera. She's, the idea is that she's extremely successful, but thought it happened rather quickly. Well, yeah, because I kind of inferred it seemed like Ron hired her, unfortunately, based on her looks more than her resume sure and the fact that she's actually successful is just a bonus because the whole thing he makes that pass at her and says he wants to marry her but mention that he doesn't love her he just knows that she would be a good asset to him and would help advance right. the company because like she's got brains and she's got beauty and she'd be perfect but yeah he's not into her emotionally more physically right right yeah so that's what kind of makes him a douchebag oh yeah completely Speaking of Carolyn, then when she we see like her first day at the office and she goes into the boardroom and all the other employees are sitting around and uh, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do about their biggest account, which is the Schooner Tuna Company. They're trying to figure out the ad, an ad that would work for them. And they're all pulling their hair out on the table. There are ashtrays and cigarettes and coffee and McDonald's everywhere, all over the table. Talk about sign of the times. Oh, yeah. Early 80s, it's disgusting. Yeah. There is a little funny moment there because Carolyn starts cleaning up the table just out of instinct, like it's a motherly instinct. They're like, you're not at home. You don't have to do that. Yeah. But it was just pretty gross. That was a complaint. <laughs> like, it's pretty damn disgusting. All right. So my first complaint is, because then when I thought about this, and you mentioned this, one of your favorite scenes, not that I have an issue with the scene, but it, it's just the method. So it's the south to drop off, north to pick up. Okay, yeah. Why don't you just do south both ways? Because if you're doing south to drop off so the kid does not have to run around the car, he's going to have to run around the car when you pick up if you go the other way. So Mm. you should just do the same thing. It doesn't sound as cool to say south to drop off and pick up. You know, it just sounds catchy saying it that way. But in actuality, it should just be you come in south to drop off and pick up. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense to reverse directions. I don't know what that would do. No for anybody in any way i mean if all the cars are just going in one direction i don't think you the kids would have to cross in front of any other cars but why reverse the direction at all just to have them go in the same direction right. both times it's a good point because it would be one thing if it had to do with like rush hour at the day and there's streets that are better to take and so it's a better if you come in this way and go out that way whatever but that's getting really mm-hmm. technical and it's just not necessary yeah I'm I'm right there with you. Because technically you can go both ways too because they demonstrate by Alex getting out on the passenger side and running around and he ends up running through the mud and puddle. But if he gets out the driver's side because he's supposed to be in the back seat because he's a child, it would still be okay because he's on the school side. It's one of those things when you really think about it, you're like, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not. It's wow. Not. Yeah. No, hey, man. We're breaking it down for you. I know. It's what we do here on the All 80s Movies Podcast. So you don't have to. All right. So there's a scene in the movie where Jack cooks this nice dinner for Caroline. And Caroline comes home late for work. 
I right. felt like it was a missed opportunity because I wanted to know, like, was it an anniversary dinner? Were they celebrating a promotion? Mm. There's still a little tension between the two of them. And then this is kind of like a peace offering that Jack's making. And I, I just felt like it was a missed opportunity. It could have been like a good comedic moment or something. They make a big deal that he makes this dinner. I'm like, well, what's this dinner about? What are they, are they celebrating? There's no context for the dinner. Where was the payoff? Something was dropped. Yeah, you know, I can see where you're coming from. And I agree. And it makes me think of what you were saying earlier. You were alluding to the fact that you would have liked to seen a little bit more of the relationship. And now that I also think about some of the reviews that I had read on the movie, this could be a complaint. And I, it's kind of sinking in with me a little bit more. I just really enjoyed this on the superficial level or the the surface level that this is just supposed to be a comedy. Correct. In that like in that moment he is really going above and beyond to be super Mr. Mom, like super dad and really trying to make things as nice as possible for his wife and and like you said like he's turned a corner here. He's got his act together and now he's doing everything the right way, proving himself and then she doesn't, you know, come home in time and he does not probably feeling quite as appreciated as he'd like. And that in a different movie, if this movie were a half an hour longer, you could get into the relationship and that could fill this out a little bit more. You'd have fuller characters and relationships in their emotional lives because realistically they probably would be having more arguments as to how he's feeling about not working and not being the provider. How does that affect him as a man? Should it affect him as a man? Do we really start delving into gender roles and societal views on what we're supposed to be as man, woman, or other? And you know, how does that affect the relationship once you start feeling less than or less worthy, uh, which is usually, you know, it's something we do to ourselves. It's nothing that the partner is doing. Like she's just trying to do what's right and make the money so that the family can stay in the house and the kids can go to school, et cetera. And, and, She's doing the best that she can. But inevitably, things get overlooked and people feel disregarded or disrespected. And this is kind of leans into my next issue where, I, you know, Jack, when it's Halloween evening and the, the kids are about to go trick-or-treating and she's about to take off on a, a work trip with, you know, sleazy Ron, her boss, Jack makes this plea to Carolyn that, you know, he's like, you're never around anymore. You need to be home. And I kind of had this argument like, why... She's really busting her tail to make ends meet and to make sure that you guys have the life that you have in this kind of upper middle class situation. I was kind of mad at Jack in that moment. I was like, you know, but then now that I look at it because of what you've been saying and now that I'm like, well, yeah, no, of course he would be wanting her to be around a little bit more. She's just not present and that would be a natural reaction for him to have. It just felt a little unnatural maybe in this movie when he does have that moment because everything has just been kind of fun and games up to that point. We haven't had real relationship moments yet up to right. that point. And that's the kind of the only one where he's now he's upset. And I'm like, what right do you have to be upset, dude? Like you're going to ask her to stay home more when she's really succeeding at a job that she's very qualified for and very uh very good at very she has a lot of talent and a lot of great ideas and she's you know making money to allow them to exist the way they do but good point to see any kind of further relationship development just see them work through some of the hard times it's not going to be all fun and games and 
unicorns and rainbows. This is how I'll address that. And I actually do have a complaint about that scene, though. A different one. So I think what I'd like, and I wish that maybe they touched on this a little bit more, is now that Jack has taken on this Mr. Mom role, now he gets to see his family, gets to experience his family. And now he's understanding the joy of doing all this. And Carolyn mm-hmm. had this, and she's had to give it up to provide. And I think he is trying to make her aware of, I understand what you're doing, but don't forget about the good stuff that you used to do before that and try to find a better balance. I think that's what he's asking right. for, to, to find a better balance. Yes. And that's what kind of leads into my complaint is, okay, so it's Halloween. She has to fly out to Los Angeles to shoot this schooner tuna commercial. Right. Ron has a private jet. Mm-hmm. They have three little kids. They're not trick-or-treating until midnight. Trick-or-treating to maybe 8 o'clock at the latest. Right. Because they're flying out to L.A. So with the time zones, they're not getting in that late. Say, hey, I'm coming, but can we just leave at 930? You can just pick me up at 8. As soon as I'm finished trick-or-treating the kids, I'll be ready to go. You pick me up. We go right to the hangar and we take off. Yeah, great point. I mean, they're not flying commercial, so they're not waiting on the airline. He's got a plane. Make the time. Yeah, totally agree. I love trick-or-treating with my kids. It's a blast. Especially when they're that age. It's so much fun. There's no way I would miss it. So I'd be like, hey, you need me to be there. It's not going to happen if she's not there. So she has the power. So just say, hey, we're not taking off at 8. We're taking off at 930 because I'm trick-or-treating my kids. Awesome. Uh, The only other issue I had is what I call the 80s quick (laughs) wrap-up. Oh, yeah. The quick conclusion. That's really what the only other thing that kind of stood out to me. And maybe this, again, lends itself to, like, it's funny, man. Throughout this podcast now, I'm like going, you know what? Yeah, I could have used a little bit more. I needed a little bit more. It's not just all comedy. I needed to see a little more conflict and then resolution to that conflict. How do they find the real balance in the relationship? And it is all resolved a little too quickly. And especially in this resolution, it's literally like two or three lines. They find the the answer, the solution, and the balance. So at the end of the film, we know that, as Bill said, that on Halloween night, Carolyn is flying off with Ron to take care of uh, this commercial that's shooting out in L.A. Uh, for the Schooner Tuna account. And when Carolyn's out there, well, she's staying in a nice hotel room. And meanwhile, Jack's back at home and... He's sitting with Alex and tells, you know, Alex to call her and or I think is Alex missing her and wants to talk to her or wants to the call kids, her. So yeah, the call, her. call. Yeah, right. And so when uh, they call, well, at this point in the story, you know, at the end here, uh, Ron has made his way into her hotel room and he picks up the phone instead. And then Jack ends up talking to Ron for a split second. And he's like, who's this guy on the other end of the phone and assumes that Carolyn is cheating on him with Ron. And so he's all upset. And of course, the neighbors get wind of it. And sexy neighbor Joan knows about it. And she comes over to console him. And there's some comedy in here because we have Jack. The, the ABCs the of the affair. Right. He's working it out through his head and making a list on himself of going down the reasons of why or why not to do, like, engage in this affair with Joan. And meanwhile, Carolyn comes home, I believe, a little early from the shoot uh, because she got into what actually happened was she was not having an affair with Ron. Uh, She figured out what he was up to and ends up punching him in the face and comes home early to find 
Joan lying on her bed with some Jack Daniels and two glasses waiting for Jack to come out of the bathroom. Not a good look for Jack or Joan, for that matter. Carolyn's like, what the hell are you doing here? Jack finally realizes, well, damn it, I can't do this thing with Joan. I love my wife. So he walks out of the bathroom. Who's lying on the bed? Well, it's not Joan. It's Carolyn, to his surprise. And it's all too easy because Carolyn is just like, well, yeah, of course, she's a little accusatory at first, but then he comes right back at her. He's like, well, what were you doing with Ron in L.A.? Then they get into a little argument, go downstairs, and we're reintroduced to our exterminator and TV repair woman. They're both there. And again, it's like a little bit of a farcical thing with just people coming and going. But Ron comes in and he's got a Band-Aid on his nose because, you know, she had punched him. And they just resolve everything, figure out, oh, they didn't have an affair. And oh, and then it's of. Uh, Gosh, I almost forgot. Jeffrey Tambor is in this movie, by the way. And he plays Jack's boss at the auto engineering plant. And he comes in begging Jack to take his job back. And everybody's cross-talking with one another. It is it is funny. It's very lighthearted. And they figure out a balance. Well, Carolyn demands that she's going to work three days and stay home two days. And Jack's got his demands if he's going to take his job back. Because he wants his buddies, uh, Stan, and I forgot the other gentleman's name. Larry. Larry. Thank you. Stan and Larry. They're going to have to cut their jobs back, too. And the funny part about the sequence is that it's not Jack and Carolyn that are doing the negotiating with Jeffrey Tambor and Martin Mull. It's actually the exterminator and the TV repair woman who are like the middle men or middle women that are uh, making the negotiations. And they take them aside to work out the deal. And we're like, okay, so now Jack and Carolyn are going to be, you know, true co-parenting and both working parents. Am I correct? Yes. Both working and stay-at-home parents, and they'll figure out their schedules, et cetera. That's what we assume. And the movie's over. That's it. And it happens, I literally looked, I think, in like six minutes. Mm -hmm. It's in the, like, the last six minutes of the movie. Because we go from, oh, Carolyn almost could have had an affair with her boss, and Jack's at home almost about to have an affair with Joan, to six minutes later, the movie's over. Right. And over the course of this, Jack's mad because he thinks Carolyn's had an affair. Somehow he's remodeling the house and he's redone the house in 24 hours. And then the movie ends with the schooner tuna commercial playing, which we don't even think got finished filming because Carolyn leaves and the fact it's on the air on TV. And if you know anything about production, that's not happening. You can't turn anything over that fast. Right. So that's supposed to be the little funny punch at the end. So yeah, that was my my last complaint. Just way too easy. Wanted to see a little more conflict and how they're going to work this out. No, I agree. All right, so let's move on to our next segment, which is, hey, it's that actor. All right. This segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. So, Jason, who do you have for, hey, it's that actor? I am going with Miriam Flynn, who plays Annette, who I had mentioned in one of my favorite moments, uh, because she is the volunteer mom, is the like the traffic monitor. And the kids are being uh, dropped off at school. Yeah, Miriam Flynn, uh, an American voice and character actress, best known as Cousin Catherine in the National Lampoon's Vacation. Also, she was Grandma Longneck in The Land Before Time. Gosh, she goes way back, man. Before breaking into television, Flynn was a member of the Second City Improv Troupe. In 1975, she appeared on stage alongside Shelley Long, George Went, Andrea Martin, Catherine O'Hara, and James Belushi. She was a regular cast member in the Tim Conway show. She's got a great, great history. 
I'll just briefly go over uh, some of her filmography, some of her greatest hits. In 1982, she was in National Lampoon's Class Reunion. Yes, in 83, she's in This Mr. Mom, but also National Lampoon's Vacation as Cousin Catherine, wife to Quaid, Randy Quaid, uh, Cousin Eddie. Great stuff. In 84, she was on an episode of Silver Spoons. Speaking of just, she just does all these television series, like episodes of episodic TV in the 80s. She does Webster. She does Snorks. She does Cheers, Riptide, Family Ties. She was on 16 episodes of the TV series Foofer. Uh, she does The Voice, actually. She's just an accomplished voice actress. In 88, she does a film called Four Keeps. In 88, she also does 18 again. And then Stealing Home. She was on a TV show called Entering Miranda. Nine episodes of that. And then 89, Christmas Vacation. Did you know that she was also in a couple episodes of Night Court from 84 to 91? 97, Vegas Vacation. She also was in the the uh, TV series Batman Beyond, which is just another crazy like Batman crossover with actors from this film. 2003, she does Christmas Vacation 2, Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure. As recent as 2020, she was on an episode of Mom, which is a popular show there for a little bit with Anna Ferris. And anyway, still with us, still working, accomplished character actress and voice actress. Uh, she is now 70, Miriam Flynn. Excellent choice. She was on my list of possibilities. But I went with Frederick Kohler, who played Alex Butler. Yeah, excellent. This was his motion picture debut. And uh, he would go on to play Chip Lowell in 115 episodes of the hit 80s comedy Kate and Alley, uh, which might probably is his most memorable role. But um, after quiet uh, 90s, um, he would make the transition as an adult actor during the 2000s in several television appearances, such as Ally McBeal, Judging Amy, CSI, Charmed, and Malcolm in the Middle. He was a recurring character in the Death Race movie series, playing Lists, and is still working today. And he was in one of my favorite 2000s shows, Lost, too. I think he was in a handful of episodes. So shout out to Frederick. Good call, man. All right, so let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Mr. Mom? I think I have a couple of things left. Yeah, I've got a few. All right. Uh, real quick, supposedly, according to the research, Ron Howard was asked to direct this movie, but he turned it down in order to make Splash. And then on top of that, supposedly Michael Keaton turned down Splash to do this movie. So this is funny because when we were watching the credits, you see Christopher Lloyd's name come up. And you're like, oh, wow, Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. But he's in right. this movie for all about five minutes. Yeah. So I was just looking up his filmography. I didn't realize his first movie was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He played Tabor. And he was mm -hmm. one of the patients along with Jack Nicholson. What a way to start your yeah. acting career. I forget sometimes like Danny DeVito, Christopher Lloyd are in that movie. Yeah. And they're amazing. So in the beginning, we have, you know, Larry and Stan, who are the other two guys that get fired with Jack Michael Keaton and the credits I, I saw the name Tom Leopold and I was like I recognize the name but I don't recognize the actor Stan so I had to dig a little bit and dirt into him to see who he was and I think the reason I recognized his name is uh yeah he's kind of a big time television producer mm. he uh, produced uh, shows such as Cheers Ellen Carolyn in the City Will and Grace and Hope and Faith yeah, he didn't do a lot of stuff in front of the camera, but uh, he certainly did very well behind it. Good catch. And then my last thing, so I'm, I'm going to call this Six Degrees of the All-80s Movies Podcast. So Anne Gillian, uh, who plays Joan in Mr. Mom, 
starred in a short-lived television comedy called Jennifer Slept Here. Did you ever see that? No. It was only half a season. I do remember watching this. So in the show, she plays a ghost who can only be seen by the son of the family that moves into her former Beverly Hills mansion. So she's an actress who dies and she's haunting her mansion. So the son in the show is played by John P. Navin Jr., who played Cousin Dale on National Lampoon's Vacation, which we covered oh, in wow. our Summer at the Cinema series. Right. And now you just mentioned your Hayes an actor, who's Annette, who was his mom. Right. And then in one of the episodes of the show, Jennifer Slept Here, there was a special guest appearance by Zelda Rubenstein, who played Tangina oh in Poltergeist, which we covered in last month's Splatter Cinema Month. Outstanding. And she plays an exorcist who is hired by the family to get rid of Jennifer. So she spoofs her role from Poltergeist. I think the show only lasted 13 episodes, but some major tie-ins with other episodes that we've talked Fantastic. I love it, man. That's great. This is fun, something I thought about watching this. Uh, in the scene where Jeffrey Tambor's character fires the auto engineers, he reassures them that you guys are terrific engineers. You're too good to uh, not to catch on somewhere. Michael Keaton's character, Jack, replies, where are we going to catch on? Nagasaki? Three years later, Michael Keaton starred in Gung Ho, a film which opened with his character, an automotive factory foreman, traveling to Japan to convince a Japanese automaker to reopen the factory. So, yeah, a little foreshadowing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to go from this to Gung Ho. Uh, last for me, a television adaptation of the 1983 film, Mr. Mom, by MGM and Walmart's streaming service, Voodoo, which is how I watched this movie, actually, serves... As a continuation of the film, television adaptation serves as a continuation of the film following an adult Megan Butler heading back into the workforce while her husband takes over the parental duties of their two children. The series serves as the first original series for the streaming service. It stars Andrea Anders and Hayes MacArthur as Megan and Greg Anderson, respectively, and premiered on September 12, 2019. Now, here's... Something that's very funny is that our mutual friend, Chris Valenziano, had sent a text, which was a small video that he made. He was within a system of caves somewhere. He's going off on his worldly adventures, as he always does, and just awesome. And he was making uh, an allusion or alluding to a film that he had taken part in writing, in which I had a very, very small cameo in as an actor a movie called Beneath. And funny enough, uh, this I promise you, this story goes somewhere. I was like, huh, I had a really good experience on that film, not only because Chris Valenziano and another mutual friend of ours, Patrick Duty, had written the film, and then I had this small part in the film, and I got to know some of the actors who had bigger roles on the film, and it was just fun speaking with them on set, on location. Eric Adebari, who was great, and uh, Joey Kern, who is a young working actor, really, really cool guy. So I went on to IMDb and was like, where are these guys now? What are they doing? And thankfully, and, and uh, just great to see that they are still working. And I was looking on Joey Kern's IMDb, and I kid you not, Bill Bant, he was in two episodes of Mr. Mom, the TV series. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Voodoo. Yeah, playing the character of Rick Whelan. There you go. Just random. Talk about six degrees. Yeah, so you're connected to the Mr. Mom franchise now. Sort of. Loosely. 
So let's move on to box office. So Mr. Mom was released on July 22nd, 1983 in 126 theaters on an estimated budget of $5 million. It grossed $64.8 million domestically. The film opened to limited release in July, earning the number 13 spot that weekend. But upon its wide release on August 19th, 1983, almost a month later, it moved up to the number three spot at the box office with a 220% increase in ticket sales behind number one's easy money and number two's risky business. Mr. Mom would capture the number one spot the following week and would hold the number one spot for another four weeks. Mr. Mom would end up being the eighth highest grossing movie domestically of 1983. Wow. It was eighth. Yep. No kidding. That high. Yeah, it was a big hit. So moving on to reviews, uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel did not review this movie for their show at the movies. Roger did, however, give the movie two out of four stars in his review for the Chicago Sun-Times, stating, Mr. Mom gives itself away with its title, I think. They had a great idea here. It's too bad they didn't follow it through on a human level. Instead of making it feel made up and artificial and twice removed from the everyday experience it pretends to be about. So Leonard Maltons in his 2015 movie guide, final edition of the long running movie guide series, gives Mr. Mom two and a half stars stating likable stars make it palatable, but you've seen it all before. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 75% and it has an IMDb rating of 6.6. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. So we have any additional thoughts and questions about Mr. Mom? Uh, Just, you know, going back to the Whoopi, man. Love the Whoopi. Man, this brought back memories of the blankie that I had. And I can't remember. I should have called. My dad, I don't know, to find out because somebody would knit the blankie for me. It was my either Aunt June or Joanne. I think it was Aunt June. Regardless, I just remember, man, having that attachment. And I remember losing my blankie once. It was at Disney World. They were kind of carting me around and I had it with me and I dropped it at some point and they just didn't know. Ouch. And that was uh, not good. But there was, I didn't like have a major breakdown oh, or anything like that. But I think... They knew, though, it would be an issue, and immediately, I think my aunt made another one for me. So, crisis averted. But, uh, yeah, I definitely was thinking about my my own whoopee. Uh, here's a question for you, man. When Jack Butler gets his act together in this film, and we see that he basically tames Jaws, the vacuum, does he have a remote control yes, for the vacuum? That's impressive for 1983. His remote control. Did you do any research on that? I meant to look that up. No, I did, did not. vacuums have remote controls? <laughs> Is that a thing? No, I don't think so. It would just be too hard to do. Thought and a question? Because I was like, well, that's cool. It is kind of funny, though, that they... It is, like, on a almost fantastical level. Like, because he tells the vacuum, like, to get into the closet... As if the, literally the vacuum has a mind of its own. Mm -hmm. Like it's a sentient being of some kind. Anything else? Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know if you had anything. I was going to give you an opportunity to go. Oh, I just I, had yeah, questions. I, I didn't really, yeah. Okay, here's a thought. Speaking of my, hey, it's that actor, Miriam Flynn. I don't want to see an adult in an E.T. costume. Like she's too tall. It looks weird. E.T.'s supposed to be little and cute. And just E.T.'s supposed to be short. That's my point. Mm -hmm. Weird seeing a tall person as E.T. Or taller person. 
It was just a weird thing. I think it was just weird, even for me as a kid, seeing adults dress up to go trick-or-treating. Because that just never happened in my... The parents just walked along with you. They never dressed up. So I just found that weird. Right. Wow. Parents dress (laughs) up to go trick-or-treating? Yeah. I don't don't, don't do that with my kids. Right. I'll wear like a Halloween-themed shirt or something. Like I'll wear my Ghostbusters shirt or Evil Dead or something. Yeah. I just do that. I don't dress up in a costume. Uh, That's great. My... uh Less additional thought, man. Speaking of sign of the times and like a lot, a lot of eighties elements in this movie. Here's a shout out to Eastern Airlines. Oh, Good yeah. old Eastern Airlines. That was the first commercial airline my father flew for. Oh, was it really? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It was good to see that Eastern logo alongside that uh, airplane stock photography shot. Yeah. Shout out to Eastern. One of the few times it's not Pan Am because it always used to be like Pan Am was in every <laughs> freaking movie. Yeah, so just uh, questions. I kind of touched on a little of this before. So just three questions real fast. So do you think Joan always had a thing for Jack? Now, what do you think Joan and Carolyn's relationship was? And did Joan have any kids? I think Joan probably, yes, did always have a thing for Jack. Okay. What was Joan's relationship to Carolyn? Was that the second question? I would think that they actually were probably pretty good friends as neighbors i think well that's a tough one i you know what i would have assumed was that now that i think about it she may have been friends with carolyn but maybe one of the lesser friends not as her friendship may have not been as strong with carolyn as some of the other neighbors like annette because they seem cold uh, towards know. each other but mm-hmm. joan mentions that carolyn called her to let her know to keep an eye on Jack, especially going to the That's supermarket. That's the strange thing is that Joan is pretty obvious about her flirtation with Jack, and there's just no way she would be like that if she were that close with Carolyn. Well, you would hope. Right. But maybe she's only being that way because she knows that the distance between Jack and Carolyn is growing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Good question. Uh, and does Joan... I think I wouldn't have thought that she had kids. Yeah, I didn't think so either. So, I, yeah, I have a question for you, Bill. Go ahead. Because, you know, the opening of the film is we, we see Carolyn getting up early in the morning, just taking care of those motherly duties. I mean, she's just she's great at what she does at home. And she gets everybody in order and uh, gets the kids up. And it's just doing the routine and taking care of all the details and then goes to get Jack out of bed. And my question is to you, man, who gets up first? You or Hillary? Who's in charge of getting the kids up and having breakfast? Hillary. Yeah. I'm the one that takes the kids to school. So basically when they're ready to gotcha. go, I literally roll out of bed, throw on a shirt, and then drive them off to school. There you go. You got it down. You have your assigned duties. Mm-hmm. But during the pandemic, because my wife was a teacher, she actually had to go in because she was doing nursery school, which didn't fall under, for some reason, the guidelines. So she had to go in every day. So then I had to get the kids up and do all that fun stuff and get them ready and get their laptops up and, and running. Yeah. yeah, not fun. I, I enjoy, Mr. Mom. Yeah, I enjoy the extra 20 minutes sleep. I mean, that should have been my real question is when, and it will be right now, is when if you had to really play Mr. Mom, whether it be because job situation or she's off on vacation or uh, for whatever reason. Um, Or have is that just not really? No, nah, that's not really. So she's never had to leave you alone with the kids for like a week or something like that, or even a few days? No. Uh-huh. How about that? Okay. She, she keeps threatening right. to. She's not pulling the trigger. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Did you have any other questions? Simple question. Favorite Michael Keaton comedy? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a a great question. My my instinct, and I think my answer has to be B, 
Beetlejuice just has to be. That's my answer. Okay. That's I, he's just so insane in that. It's just so unique, so strange. Yeah, I'd put that as my favorite comedy performance of his. But the movie overall, because when he's not on screen, you're just waiting for him to get back on screen. Yeah, because he's stealing every yeah, moment. Yeah. So which is your favorite Michael Keaton comedy? Yeah, because I was thinking about it too. Just even when you're rattling off the filmography, this is probably his best comedy. But then, Mr. Mom. Yeah, yeah. Then, yeah, I might have to watch Dream Team again, though. I always liked that movie. His best comedic performance is Beetlejuice. That character is amazing. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's move on to our rating. So, Jason, on a scale of one to five whoobies, what do you give Mr. Mom? It's just fun saying whoobie. It is. That's all there is to it. I'm giving this 3.5 whoobies. Man, this movie is great. I, it was so much fun. Now i got to really think about my favorite Michael Keaton comedy. Dang it. Now you got me. Okay, so uh, 3.5. You know, it's such an easy watch, but I, I think I changed my rating as this podcast went along only because I think originally I was going to give it four whoobies. It's just that, speaking of meat on the bones, you'd read uh, Malton and Sis, uh, Ebert's reviews, excuse me. This could have used a little more, a couple more levels, maybe. A little more relationship development to add a little bit more realism or uh, give the audience a little more investment into the relationships and characters just to, so we could empathize, empathize a little bit more. Maybe it adds a little realism. I don't know if that was maybe not the intent of the film. Is this just supposed to be a straight fun up, straight up fun comedy? So it, it worked for me. I was just thoroughly entertaining. I heavily recommend it. Yeah. It could have used a little extra. Sure. So there's where I kind of docked at another 0.5, but yeah, 3.5 whoobies for me. Just, it's a blast. Really fun. Yeah, I'm right there with you with a 3.5. And I think nostalgia-wise, I was thinking this was going to be a 4 or 4.5. And then watching it, yeah, I was like, yeah, everything's on the surface on this movie. But it is a good family movie. I think you can watch with your kids if something that you could show them from the 80s. And there's really nothing in there that I think would be too risque, per se. Yeah, it's pretty tame. Uh, it's Yeah, I agree. It's pretty wholesome for the most part. But you're right. It's a lot of it is on service. This movie is is just a, like a series of hijinks, mm-hmm. really. And yeah, maybe some of the references they won't get because you know what's Jaws, what's Rocky, what's Chariots of Fire, what's Young and the Restless. This is one of yeah one of those movies one of you know the movies we've done thus far that really is a sign at the time. Like there is a lot of eighties. No, oh, yeah, a lot of things very specific to the eighties. Mm-hmm. But yeah, everything basically you said, I put my stamp of approval on it too. So yep, three point five will be. So this is the first time we've matched in a while. I would also say, lastly, if you're not out there, listeners, if you, for whatever reason, aren't familiar with Michael Keaton's work or his body of work, this is a great, great introductory. Yes. Great jumping off point. Yes, definitely. Yeah. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcasts at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at All80smoviespodcast. Catch us on TikTok at All80smoviespodcast, or tweet us at PodcastAll80s. Uh, Next week, we'll be discussing the adventure fantasy Willow, starring Warwick Davis, Val Kilmer, and Joanne Whaley. We hope you join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone. My brain is like oatmeal. I yelled at Kenny today for coloring outside the lines. 
Megan and I are starting to watch the same TV shows, and I'm liking them. I'm losing it. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. South to drop off, moron. (laughs) She's so mad. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.